0: From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind the scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchik. Today on Transition Lab, we have Johannes Abraham, the executive director of the Biden Harris transition team. After growing up in Northern Virginia, Johannes went to Yale as an undergrad and received his MBA from the Harvard Business School. He spent all eight years in the Obama White House, including as deputy assistant to the president and senior advisor to the National Economic Council. After stints teaching at Harvard and in the private sector, he jumped headfirst into the transition early this summer. Now, Johannes is a longtime friend. I'm thrilled to have him. And it's amazing and exciting to talk about the great job he's done. In fact, as of today, January 18th, when we're retaping the opening, the Biden team has appointed more than twice as many White House officials, 206, than any previous transition team. Kudos to Ron Klain. It also looks like they'll exceed 50 nominees subject to confirmation by the Senate later today. The previous record was 42 by President-elect Obama. My gut is they'll land up at 52 or 53, which will significantly eclipse the Obama record. So Johannes and the entire transition team have been incredibly productive, despite extraordinarily difficult circumstances. So Johannes, welcome to Transition Lab. Thanks for having me, Dave. Now, a note to our listeners. We originally taped this on January 7th, a day after what clearly was an insurrection, a riot in the Capitol where five Americans died, including a police officer. It was one of the most disturbing days in American history, and certainly one in my lifetime. Because we taped this after that terrible day, we simply decided to delay the release because we struggled to find the right words to discuss what happened on January 6th. As we learned more, it became even more troubling. So rather than Johannes and I having a detailed discussion of those events on this podcast, We'd simply point our listeners to President-Elect Biden's moving remarks on January 6th on the subject, to the judgment of law enforcement officials in the short term and the coming days ahead, and in the longer run, to the judgment of history on those who participated in and those who incited an effort to overcome the foundation of our democracy, the vote for President of the United States. With that, let's go straight to the podcast Starting with Johannes, how you became involved in this historic transition in the first place.
1: So, I first started talking with Jeff Zients, one of the transition co chairs, late April, I believe. And he had begun talking to Senator Ted Kaufman and Mark Gittenstein about potentially co chairing the transition. And early on in that process, he sort of pulled me in to talk things through and begin to talk about whether it made sense to work together again. I had worked for Jeff. On the National Economic Council in the White House. And he was aware of the fact that I've had a long time interest in transitions that I actually, my course at the Kennedy School in part teaches uh, about transitions. And so pretty soon upon him entering into those conversations, he pulled me in. And so you hadn't done a transition
0: before or led one or been deeply involved. So you had to learn essentially as many previous transition directors have done. And so who were the people that you turned to for advice and what
1: was the best advice you received? Well, First and foremost, the the institutional knowledge of the partnership was invaluable throughout the entirety of of the transition, and that was particularly true early on. Uh, Having access to archived information uh, in one central place to folks who had a lot of expertise in transitions and who had sort of aggregated the wisdom of prior transitions and and put it into a centralized and digestible place, that that was hugely valuable. Early on, all of us, uh, Senator Kaufman, Mark, Jeff, myself, we all spent a good deal of time talking to people who had run transitions in the past and who had been, very importantly, who had been the recipients of transition materials on the way in. And the conversations really were encouraging in so much as there's there's a community of folks who've spent a lot of time thinking about transitions. It's a very bipartisan community. Folks like Governor Levitt, former White House Chief of Staff Josh Bolton, as well as John Podesta and Chris Liu and... Uh, folks who've who'd sort of seen it on both ends.
0: And so you start in April. We're already in the pandemic. We're already operating remote. So I mean, I've seen how hard you've been working. Tell our listeners, what's your typical day? When do you wake up? What do you do? And when do you go to sleep? And what happens in
1: between? We, we had an early rising transition. I think Jeff and I would normally uh, have our first conversation of the day, either via text or, or first phone call of the day, usually before 6 a.m., sometime around five thirty, five forty-five when we'd both be would have been up for a little bit and and, uh, would begin to compare notes for the day. The truth is, and I'm sure everyone in prior transitions has said this, there's no, there's no typical day. And that's true for a couple of reasons. One, the nature of the work changes a lot in the different phases of a transition. So you sort of have the pre pre transition transition before the conventions. You have the convention period to election day. You have the election, uh, the period between election day and inauguration day. And each of those have a really different complexion in terms of the nature of the work and the actual output that you're producing. I think I'd be offering false precision if I tried to point to uh, a typical day, other than to say extremely uh, interesting, gratifying, and hard work.
0: And so one of the things you did very early on was you and Jeff said, we're going to have a slightly different approach to staffing. So previous transition teams, you have typically have a senior person like John Podesta or Mike Levitt, and then maybe one person below that who's relatively senior, but then it's a lot of junior people. You decided very early on that you needed heft, you needed depth, and it was a very, very different approach to staffing. So why did you make that decision and what was the result of that?
1: I think early on, we were all aware of the fact that this was going to be a difficult transition for uh, a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the, the nature and scope and scale of the challenges that we knew we would inherit, and it really is those challenges, those crises that the nation is facing. Pretty quickly, led us to the realization that we needed we needed a caliber of talent that could that could match those challenges, and so we decided pretty early on to to bring in some very senior, very seasoned, uh, very experienced uh, policy leaders uh, into the organization, and uh, that started with Avril Haynes, included Cecilia Muñoz, and just a whole whole crew of people who had served as principals in prior administrations or as very senior members of the the organizations that they were coming from and who had a real commitment to the work. And I think that the sort of unifying thread, besides their excellence and how great they all were as professionals, the unifying thread was a real uh, shared perspective on the fact that this transition could be and should be deeply impactful in terms of delivering outcomes for Americans come January.
0: And another thing you did was you really studied past transitions, organizational structures. And past transitions have kind of had four work streams. So appointments, policy, agency review, and then something called president-elect support, which is basically planning what the president-elect will do in the 78 days during the interregnum. You know, where will he be or she? What will he do? Who will he talk to? Um, will he be on vacation? What are his messages? Um,
1: so what changes did you make this, to this traditional approach? So the first thing I'll say is we we are... Uh, and have been the beneficiaries of a lot of generosity on the part of uh, prior transition leaders uh, across both parties. In terms of tweaks that we made, and, and these tweaks again were sort of largely uh, derived from some of the lessons learned from those prior leaders, and some of them were derived from our observation uh, as to how our observations on how this transition was different from and sort of fundamentally different from other transitions. So, you know, two two tweaks that I would point to one. The agency review and policy processes. Uh, we decided to ensure that they that they there was a lot of connective tissue between what we were doing at the agencies and what are how our policy implementation planning was going. And this connective tissue, to our minds, was early on was critical because what you didn't want, and I think what some prior transitions would say that they ended up having, what you don't want is election day comes, and then in the seventy eight days between election day and inauguration day, you have parallel, and it may be in some cases diverging processes that deal with substance. Folks like Avril and Cecilia had a lot of conviction early on that you want those two things married up. And so the agency review and policy teams, instead of bifurcating them into different departments, what we did is put them under the same departmental houses and then group the departments by uh, issue sets. And so Avril led policy de- uh, implementation planning and agency review for national security and foreign policy agencies and for those issues, and Cecilia Munoz did those for the domestic and economic suite of issues. Now, that choice is one that has definitely proven itself to uh, have worked. The work of the agency review teams uh, has fed directly into the policy process. The policy process has uh, very much informed the work of the agency review teams, and that continuous feedback loop sort of early on uh, theorized about has ended up being very helpful. Now, for that to work And work well holistically. um, It required something that both Cecilia and Avril were passionate about, which is the basic concept of breaking down silos between the national security and foreign policy work and the domestic and economic work. Because, as everyone knows, the issues that we're facing, the crises that we're facing, don't respect you know traditional organizational boundaries. Whether it's climate or um, getting the pandemic under control, uh, or any number of issues, immigration issues don't respect White House office or department lines. And so Sicilian of Real, uh, besides integrating the agency review and policy work, also had a big commitment to making sure that the national security and foreign policy teams and the domestic and econ teams built in process and connective tissue to keep their work very much connected and and keep us away from silos. The other organizational tweak that we decided on early and uh, has proven to be, I think, right, is we invested more than more attention, effort, staffing towards non-Senate-confirmed appointees than prior transitions had. And that was basically born of our observation that we had to hit the ground running um, early after Inauguration Day. We wanted to make sure that our senior cabinet officials, upon confirmation, had appropriate and adequate support so they could hit the ground running. And we wanted to make sure that given the degraded capacity of some Agencies whether it be due to deteriorated morale or attrition in terms of seats literally being empty, we knew that argued for having more slots filled earlier in that first term than prior transitions had invested in, and so we built the organization accordingly
0: and it's paid off i mean we've we tracked the data very carefully and you know you've a, you've announced somewhere between one hundred and seventy five to two hundred officials already which will put you on pace for being the fastest administration ever out of the gate. And there are many, many non-Senate confirmed officials who are ready to go in who haven't been announced. And so I think you know the numbers have paid off. Do you, do you feel like you're hitting the goals in terms of numbers that you and Jeff and, and
1: Senator Kaufman uh, decided on early on? Yes. And you know that's thanks to, we've got a great team that's been working really hard uh, for a long period of time um, to hit those goals. But also I think importantly, to hit those goals with excellent people, uh, with a diverse group of candidates and eventual hires who uh, bring a lot of different experiences to the table, and really know what they're doing, and that we're we're just extremely proud of and excited to to know that they we're excited to know that they'll be doing the heavy lifting come inauguration day.
0: What are the major innovations that you know you look back on, and that other transition teams should look back on that? You think are are you're
1: most proud of, and that future transition teams should study. Here's what I'd say. I think I think the truth is you you you've got to have humility about these things, and the proof in the, the proof will be in the pudding of the first year of governing. So, you know, I, I think the the preface I'd have to my answer is uh, there's a lot of things that we're really proud of, but all of the great metrics that we've hit and all of the great work that's been done really is towards successful governing. And so, you know, the governing will, will ultimately tell the story.
0: Johannes, obviously you and Ted and Jeff and the entire team just did a spectacular job. You know, it was an enormous effort. But the transition also requires that you interact with other stakeholders, particularly the Trump White House and GSA and all of the agencies. So let's let's talk about that. So how has it been working with GSA? How have they helped you? What are the major problems you've solved and what are... Any other
1: observations? In terms of stakeholders, I'll I'll take a step back and say there's there's two broad. And I talked about three broad phases of the transition. That's certainly true operationally. In terms of stakeholders, you have two obvious uh, different phases of the transition: pre-election and post-election. Pre-election, you know, we had a saying, and I think Senator Kaufman mentioned it uh, when he was on uh, that. And we, you know, we said it with with language that would vary and how colorful it was, but it all basically boiled down to Uh, A big value of this transition and a value that every transition should hold really close pre-election is to do nothing to hurt the campaign. Our basic theory of the case was pre-election, we were a very inward-facing organization. We brought in a lot of expertise. We uh, recruited a fantastic advisory board to give us in-house some of the uh, reach and perspective uh, to sort of diversify the views that were coming in. But by and large, we were very inward uh, inwardly focused organization. I think that's, that's how it should be post-election. We put a big premium on outreach on, uh, we had a robust, uh, office of legislative affairs that was built and ready to go and ready to basically hit the Hill virtually on, uh, day one after the election. And we did the same for intergovernmental affairs and for public engagement and, and so on and so forth. So that way we could benefit from, um, the wisdom and perspectives of, of uh, folks not part of our organization. Now, to, to your more specific question about some of the, the critical stakeholders in government, I think there's a couple of things I'd say. One, almost without exception, we have been blown away by the commitment and professionalism and dedication of career civil servants who are part of the transition process. Um, and that very, very much includes the career, career civil servants who are central to the overall transition process uh, by dint of their role at GSA. And our relationship with uh, our transition uh, counterparts at GSA was something that we took very seriously and something that was very important to us, uh, very important to the substance of the work throughout the entirety of the transition. Um, There's so much to do that having someone or a set of people who, A, understand exactly how difficult a proposition transitions are in any circumstance, and B, have some reps at doing it. Uh, it'd be foolish not to fully avail yourselves of, of their wisdom, and we certainly uh, look to do that. Part of the part of the transition effort is um, working with the uh, incumbent White House, um, which uh, which we did uh, over the course of the transition, and you know I'd, I'd, I'd leave it at that. One of the things that Ted
0: talked about on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago was two different streams of work kind of conventional challenges, which are all the challenges that every transition team deals with. Obviously, no other transition team has dealt with the challenges that you're facing, given the economic crisis, the health crisis, the social justice, racial justice crisis, and the political crisis, but then also an unconventional challenges uh, stream of work. And one of the unconventional challenges that you faced was a three-week delay getting access to the agencies because the ascertainment delay. So did you anticipate that? And what did you do about it? And then once your teams gained access to the agencies, you know, so how has that gone overall?
1: We, we, we definitely, and, and fairly early on, realized that ascertainment, unfortunately, might not follow even after, a, might not immediately follow even a clear electoral victory. I, I think part, part of the mentality you have to have while planning a transition is, is you've, you've got to think about worst case scenarios and build contingencies for them. And so I don't know what probability at any given point pre-election uh, I or others would have assigned to the possibility that ascertainment would be delayed, um, but it was non-zero. And the fact that it was non-zero and it was it was appreciable meant that we had to have a plan for it. And so the um, agency review teams led by Cecilia and Avriel uh, built a whole suite of programming that the agency review teams could do in. Uh, the scenario where we were not ascertained it was post-election and that we were not ascertained and we did not have access to the f- uh, federal agencies. And they basically looked to figure out where they could add value to our end goal, which is being ready on day one and laying the foundation for a strong first term. They they, they looked at where they could move the needle on that, even in, um, uh, even in the absence of direct engagement with the agencies. And so you know, this included things like having a really strong and solid list of Uh, former Obama-Biden administration officials, and even some former Trump administration officials who raised their hand to be helpful in giving our teams a sense of the state of play uh, at federal agencies. It included having a very deliberate and intentional schedule of congressional consultations because uh, obviously committees of oversight and um, committees of jurisdiction uh, and um, uh, the staff of those committees have a real feel and touch for what's transpired at these agencies over the last four years in a way that, uh, in a way that some folks who, who left in January of 2017 might not. And so they really look to have a theory of the case on how they could make progress. Because you have 78, in this, in this transition, we had 78 precious days between Election Day and Inauguration Day. And we, our basic mentality was we were going to maximize each of those days, even in the face of obstruction. Uh, since ascertainment and since we've been able to talk to the agencies, I'd I, I just go back to what I said earlier, which is that almost invariably the career civil servants that we've uh, engaged with have been uh, professional, resourceful, and very helpful. In most agencies overall, uh, we've had the ability to exchange information and, and learn and have access to the sorts of uh, the sorts of things that our incoming cabinet secretaries and incoming White House teams need to be effective. And there have been um, some instances where that hasn't been the case, uh, largely driven by um, obstruction from political appointees. Some of those have unfortunately um, played themselves out in the press. Uh, others, we've worked hard to uh, improve over time. Um, so I guess what I'd say, it's, it's been an uneven experience uh, in terms of the level of cooperation we've gotten while also acknowledging just the really excellent work by uh, career civil servants and the fact that many of the uh, agency review processes did go relatively smoothly, if delayed. And, you know, a
0: couple of the agencies, the issues have played out in the press, OMB, DOD, where there's been, you know, lack of cooperation. One of the things that I've talked about is, you know, under President Bush and President Obama, for example, you had clear leadership from the top, where the the outgoing president of the United States instructed their cabinet, instructed the White House officials, instructed the entire teams to cooperate. And Josh Bolton did that and Dennis McDonough followed through on that, on the orders of the president. Here, you don't have those instructions. And so you have some officials trying to do a good job and some officials not. Um, But what was the impact of the lack of
1: cooperation that you faced at DOD and OMB? Think about DOD's purview. I mean, DOD is central to that most elemental role of government keeping the citizens of this country, safe and secure. I mean, DOD is central to not only protecting the homeland, but also protecting our installations overseas. You think it's responsible for the safety and welfare of tens of thousands of American service members around the world. And an incoming administration needs to be in a position to understand the threats facing Americans around the world. And also to understand, in real time, our capabilities and our, any operations underway to deter our adversaries. And that real-time exchange of information, that sort of real-time touch and feel is something that can only be obtained through really robust engagement. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example that, that hits home. I mean, part of DOD's vast uh, purview uh, is that it oversees the NSA and Cybercom, uh, both of which have a very important role to play when it comes to cybersecurity threats. You know, an incoming team requires the transition period, requires robust engagement during the transition period to learn the latest cyber threat landscape and to be in a position to protect critical data and systems from the very beginning and we know that our adversaries look at the transition period as a period of time where they might be even more keen than usual to attempt hostile activity and so you know th- those are, those are illustrative of I think a broader point which is to say that uh, particularly as it relates to our national security the the national security agencies Uh, And the leadership of those agencies, uh, more specifically, really owe it to the American people to robustly engage during periods of transition.
0: So let's talk about a couple of other innovations. One is the culture of confidentiality you created, of protecting information, which gave you essentially the ability to do your work behind the scenes with the campaign front and center communicating to the American people. So the campaign's out front, the transition works in the background. Many other transitions have had huge problems with this. The Carter transition, for example, leaked plans and policies in the days before the election that the campaign didn't even know about. President George H. W. Bush had a whole transition operation which operated confidentially, but actually he himself was the one that leaked the information about that transition right before the Republican convention. So how did you establish this culture where information was so highly protected And why? First
1: and foremost, organizational discretion has two basic components to it. One are the systems and processes you put in place to protect information. And the second, which I think is the more important one, is the culture that you build, which is really, you know, primarily derived from the actual the people that you bring in the door. And so pre-election, we screened really hard for a couple of things in terms of who we brought on board. One, we only looked at people who we had a lot of conviction, really shared a sense of passion about this moment in time and also a sense of, uh, I think, an accurate sense of the stakes and specifically the stakes of the election. And that's all a way of saying that every senior leader we brought on and everyone we brought onto their teams really at a gut level internalized their responsibility to their colleagues on the campaign side, their responsibility to keep things quiet to keep things to themselves, and to not do anything that could in any way impair the campaign's ability to drive its own narrative and make its own news. And that was really the foundation of us, uh, sort of our culture uh, as it relates to discretion before pre-election. It was we had a lot of people who really saw it as part of their service to protect the campaign from distraction. We also, uh, in addition to bringing on the right people, we also really hammered home Uh, that core point, the importance of discretion, you know, basically came up every single all staff call, basically came up every single um, uh, staff call of any size. It just became, you know, one of the golden rules of the team and something that we, we, over time as the months passed from the summer into the fall, and we were able to avoid uh, information getting out. It's something that people prided themselves on, and that has a, a compounding effect in terms of, sort of the longer we went without a damaging leak, the more bought in people were to the fact that we were all in this together and we're all holding information closely, which made it sort of easier and more natural for that to be the case going forward.
0: And one other innovation is just the collaboration and the coordination with the campaign. So again, you and Jeff and Ted studied this problem. Virtually every other transition team and the campaigns have had major tension. You know, How did you avoid that? What type of systems did you create how often did you communicate with the campaign? What were the, was the cadence? You know, Just get into that a little.
1: I think, again, it, it sort of starts, we, we had a very clearly articulated set of values for the transition. And we hired against it and we made decisions against it. We didn't just sort of put it up on the wall as a nice thing to look at and ignore it. We, we, we looked at those values, we codified them and we looked at them constantly. And we really tried to work backwards from them as we made decisions. And I, I, I start from that that point of view, because one of our values was to do nothing to distract from the campaign. We just, you know, we sort of, there's a public facing component of that, avoiding leaks, et cetera. And there's also an interpersonal component of that, which is distracting from the campaign isn't just, you know, potentially creating bad headlines for the campaign. It's taking away precious, uh, mind share, or that, that, uh, taking away precious mindshare because of a lack of trust Uh, because of opacity on the part of the transition in a way that is concerning for campaign leaders. And so we really internalized early on that the campaign was the lead horse uh, in this effort. And we prioritized their needs, um, first and foremost, as related to the relationship between the two entities. I think we had a lot of what I call organizational humility about our role relative to the campaign's role. There's no transition without a campaign. And so that made decisions, real, decisions that could, in, in other instances, cause friction. It actually made them quite easy for us. If there was a jump ball between someone that the campaign wanted to hire and someone that we wanted to hire, they got first dibs. Easy. There wasn't an argument. There wasn't anything underhanded. There wasn't anything uh, to argue about in that situation. And that's, I use that as an example, I think, of uh, a broader approach to working with them is that they, and I think this is something that you know, I'd counsel future transitions to take to heart, the campaign takes precedence. You know, one one other thing I'd add is that we were mindful in our recruitment on the transition um, to bring people on who had a lot of successful past work history with key leaders on the campaign, and so it was a natu- The the collegiality flowed naturally from years and in some cases decades of um, trust and um, history. And so people weren't coming in cold. We didn't, you know, we very consciously didn't hire a group of people that didn't know anyone on the campaign. We hired people basically for every slot that had, you know, their counterpart on the campaign would be excited about. And that was something we were intentional about. And it worked out well. So,
0: I mean, basically, you know, so for example, Jake Sullivan had an impact on hiring people in the policy area and people in the communication side of the campaign had an impact on hiring communications and and all across the board. and And that allowed you to avoid the type of problems that previous transition teams have have faced, which is very positive. So you've been given this just incredible responsibility. You know, you're know, you in meetings with the president-elect all the time. You're dealing with putting together a cabinet. You know, How have you approached just this
1: incredible responsibility and becoming the leader that you are? Well, two things come to mind. One is I, I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude for the opportunity to serve in this capacity, tremendous amount of gratitude to the president-elect and to the vice president-elect for the the opportunity uh, to serve and i've got a lot of gratitude for we have a tremendous tremendous team and it was you know it's transitions are a lot of work um and the work isn't always uh, the work itself isn't always fun but we've got uh, we've assembled a group of professionals that have come together as a unit um really have a shared commitment to uh, not only our values and the values that uh president like biden uh, Represents, uh, but also just the, to the criticality of the work of this moment, and that makes for a really enjoyable workplace. And you know, to the extent to which uh, we've had successes, it's been totally because uh, we have a really great team, and I'm I'm very grateful to them for doing so.
0: And I'm reminded of what Mike Levitt said when uh, when I talked to him. He had been three time governor of Utah, two time cabinet secretary, and then he ran the Romney transition. For you know seven eight nine months, and he said it was the most interesting and challenging thing he ever did in, in his life. And so I think you found this to be the most interesting and, and challenging, you know,
1: opportunity that you've had in your life as well, right? I think that's I, I, I think Governor Levitt uh, characterizes it, right. It's uh, transitions are extraordinarily interesting intellectually. Um, they're hard. They're very hard work, um, and they're very satisfying work because. Um, if if you believe in the ability of government to make a positive impact in people's lives, which I do and our entire team does, um, then it's really satisfying thinking about uh, ways in which to make government work better and ways in which to make uh, it work uh, more effectively uh, for the American people. I mean, that's, that's a, it's a great thing to be able to wake up every day knowing that you're able to do that.
0: Okay. How about this question? How many emails do you get a day asking
1: for jobs from people. <laughs> well, you know what I'd say is actually, I, you know, th- look, there's, there's a lot of volume of interest in serving in the Biden-Harris administration. And in, in a lot of ways, that's been one of the most energizing things about the job is um, just seeing the hunger for change and seeing how widespread the enthusiasm for this upcoming administration is. And, and there's no really greater expression of enthusiasm or support than a willingness to raise your hand and, you know, stop whatever you're doing and put the rest of your life on hold and make the, what is often the sacrifice of coming into government. So I've, i the volume has been high. Um, but I found it to be really energizing. Okay. Here's another serious
0: question. So you've done these
1: briefings with Jen
0: Psaki, you know, tens and or hundreds of thousands of people watch the briefings, but I noticed that there's nothing on your walls. Like, you know, so if they're just blank white walls. So have you not thought of like putting a poster or a piece of art or just a picture, something on your walls? Like what's, what's I going have, on there? I,
1: I don't know that I have ever hung a piece of art in any place. <laughs> uh, and so it, it, it would feel disingenuous in the age of Zoom to uh, portray my home uh, as something other than what it is, which is, which is fairly, um, fairly Spartan in its furnishings. All
0: right. So you're kind of a minimalist art. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Two final questions. I'm, let me ask you this: Which is, and I remember asking Rich Bagger this. He led the Trump transition, and I said, "What do you wish you knew at the beginning that you know now?" And he basically talked about the intensity and the ramp. And Jeff Zines has talked to me about this: that you know, it ramps and ramps and ramps, and the intensity is is logarithmic. It it it's not linear, and it just it, the intensity is incredible. So, what do you wish you knew at the beginning?
1: of this process that you know now. Something that Jeff was really wise about is the issues that you have to wrestle with in November and December are just fundamentally more critical, intense, time sensitive than the ones that you have to wrestle with. in if you get started early in June or July, and I think, you know, you, the, the team needs to be paced appropriately in terms of their own um, uh, energy levels and ability to really put, they're all into the most critical months. And so it's something Jeff was very mindful of. And, you know, we brought on a team of folks who, as I've said a couple of times, are, were, are, are so deeply passionate about the work and so deeply committed to the work that, you know, they would have worked, uh, and in many cases they did, round the clock from day one starting in the summer. And, you know, I think it's, it, it's, it's important to make sure that you get the best of them in November and December. Jeff was really smart to make sure we put things in place to make that the case. Uh, and it's something that I'd, I'd counsel future transitions to do as well. It's not dissimilar to a campaign where you want to ensure that you, you you peak at the right moment. So, Johannes Abraham, you've done a fantastic job.
0: The transition team will be studied for many cycles to come. Uh, thanks for spending your time with us today. And more importantly, thank you for your service to our country at this critical moment.
1: Thanks for having me on today. And and thank you for both uh, the really critical support that the partnership for public service provided to the transition from day one and then you personally the support in your work with the partnership in helping us get set up get running and continue running effectively thank you if you like
0: transition lab we'd love for you to subscribe rate and give a review on apple podcast or your favorite podcast app